For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that. And I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with John Wertheim, my colleague at Tennis Channel, senior writer at Sports Illustrated and a 60 Minutes correspondent who's been on the show a couple of times before. And I want to talk with John about a lot of off-court stuff. We've been talking about on-the-court matters for uh, the better part of really most of the year. Uh, let's let's be honest. That's what we usually do. I think now is a good time to just take a quick step back. Uh, there has been news from Wimbledon being played without points, of course, being stemming from the, the ban on Russian and Belarusian players. I want to get into that with John. Uh, but the news this week more recently is the 30-year plan, ATP's One Vision, being put into place. This is uh, Andrea Gaudenzi's master plan. When he was put in charge, this is what he promised to do, and this is now what he's delivering. It will uh, begin. The process will begin phase one starting in 2023, and I really wanted to to talk th this through uh, with John. Uh, we also get into Roland Garros stuff because he, uh, he covered it for Tennis Channel for the entirety of the two weeks, so it's a good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Again, don't expect a lot of talk about forehands and backhands, but I, I will address what was a week that was not uneventful. It's actually the best week after a major week on the calendar is the week after Roland Garros because there's so little time for players to prepare for Wimbledon that the fields are, are actually quite good. And we got to start with uh, Tim Von Reithoven, who... As a wild card, ranked just outside the top 200, who is Dutch, plays her Tagenbosch. Got a wild card as you know the the local uh, home country favorite. Beats Matthew Ebden. There's no slouch on grass. He beats Taylor Fritz though, and starts to get serious. He beats Hugo Gaston. Then he beats Felix Ojealiasim, the two seed in the semis. And Daniil Medvedev, the one seed in the final. 
he had never won an ATP match. He had won a Davis Cup match, which technically counts as tour level. He had never won an ATP match. Big serve, aggressive forehand, one-handed backhand. Again, not going to delve into it in too much depth, but one of the most improbable runs to a title I have ever seen. And uh, my friends at DB4 Tennis did confirm for me it is the first time that a player ranked outside the top 200 picked up three top 15 wins and route to a title. It has never been done. So Tim Von Reichoven, it's going to be fascinating to see if uh, how he follows this up because now he goes from out just outside the top 200 to just outside the top 100. His ranking is now in a position where he's going to qualify for events. It is a career-changing run for a guy who's 25 years old. Uh, in, in Stuttgart, Matteo Berrettini comes back from injury and picks up right where he left off, wins the title there. He had a tremendous grass court season a year ago, won Queens, made the Wimbledon final. Now he's winning Stuttgart right, you know, right on the heels of a, an injury layoff. That's pretty impressive. Uh, with the way he serves, the way he hits his forehand from any contact point, able to attack, uh, he protects his backhand using the slice. I mean, he is still the real deal on grass. His opponent in the final, Andy Murray, it's no surprise to me. Just no, no surprise. What Murray needed most was a mental reset. And uh, I, again, I was saying it throughout the entirety of 2022. He just didn't seem right to me in crunch time, under pressure. I just, I didn't think he was coming up with his best tennis when he needed it. I thought he was in his head a little bit. So, you know, his ability to just step away from the game for a little bit and to have this training block, not only step away, but to have a training block with Yvonne Lendl, who's a coach he's had so much success with, a coach who instills confidence in him. I just, I... I'm not surprised that he comes back and looks the best he has all year, makes his first final since he did it in Sydney at the start of the year. Uh, it would have been his first title since Antwerp, I think, three years ago. And uh, the only bad news is he hurt his hip, just withdrew from Queens. That's really unfortunate. And hopefully it's just a, just a tweak because that would be a tough blow. I mean, timing-wise, that's brutal. We're joined once again by John Wertheim, Tennis Channel, Sports Illustrated, 60 Minutes, someone whose work and, and career I have an incredible amount of respect for. Uh, I believe, John, it is your third time on Monday Match Analysis. I'm very appreciative. And, you know, the, uh, the viewers might not know how important you are to the channel, uh, because I've been doing this mailbag segment for over a year now, which has become uh, very rewarding for me and, and the viewers and listeners have liked it as well. I don't know that I ever would have started doing that had I not been such a big fan of what you do in the written form uh, with your Sports Illustrated mailbags. Very kind of you. Good to be here. You, you are way ahead of uh, where I ever was when I was your age. Um, and no, I mean, honestly, I mean, the, the mailbag is... We, yeah, you know, God, it's it's been like embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's like almost twenty five years now, but I feel like it's really from from you know, and, and the best part of mailbag, you should, I'm sure you know this. You have discretion, right? So if somebody says, "I hate Djokovic," why do you root for that fool? You just hit delete. I mean, it's you you choose, and some of the questions are offbeat, and some of them are substantive, and some of them are questions that multiple people are asking. It's kind of a great way to, I find anyway, 
it's a great way, A, sort of selfishly to get a sense of what the casual fan is thinking. B, some of the questions are just kind of interesting, you know, brain exercises or, or deep dives. And you have discretion. So I, to me, it's it sort of started as a lark, but I, I think it's actually kind of a really effective way to cover the sport. Yeah, totally agree. And tennis fans are smart and they teach me things all the time as well. So you spent two weeks in Paris. I want to get to Roland Garros, but um, hopefully we get to that towards the end because I want to start with a couple of uh, issues uh, that that you would be my go-to on um, in terms of talking about issues in the sport that that have to do with politics and governing bodies and and the larger structures. Okay, so we have Wimbledon, we have the ATP. Uh, one vision plan. And I want to start with the latter. Something I, I first heard about when you interviewed Andrea Gaudenzi on, on your podcast, basically a two-phase plan that was just announced officially. It will be put into place in 2023. A couple parts to it. Um, the schedule reform, expanded Masters 1000s, transparency and financials and a guaranteed 50 50 revenue split uh, for players and a kind of vague promise that they are going to work on conflicts of interest in the sport. So I want to break this down with you, John, in, in three parts, starting with the fans. Should fans be happy about this news uh, of this now 30 year direction directional plan that the ATP just launched. Man, um, can we just start by saying this is going to be the least rated podcast and uh this is this is heavy in the weeds tennis jargon. No, they love can, it. Can we they just love do it. a uh, can, can we just do the goat debate and um whether Serena's <laughs> ever gonna play again? Um no. So I I mean obviously it's really important and I think there's there's a lot going on here. Some of it is kind of this you know the business speak that makes your eyes glaze over or if you're a journalist sort of makes you cynically roll your eyes but a lot of this really goes to the heart of tennis and where's it going and I mean I you know I could give you a whole monologue there's a lot going on here is it good for the fans I think it depends where you live it depends what your the nature of your fandom is if you want to see more events with the best players and you want maximum Tsitsipas and Francis and Felix which is really I mean this is all, all of this is kind of there, there are two things undergirding this one of them is what the hell is the sport going to do after the big three and the other part of this is the great irony to the ATP, which is the more they go after the majors, the more significant the majors become. How do they get their fair share out of the four big events, but also make it so the other 44 weeks are essential, right? I mean, the, the more, the more prime, I mean, God bless uh, the, the events in Hergenbosch. We all love that story. But, you know, I mean, the prize money there is second round prize money at a major. That's mm -hmm. not good for the ATP. So some of this is about narrowing the gap between tour events and majors. Um, some of this is just sort of for, from a media standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, presentation. Where is the sport going when these three guys with 60-some majors retire? Is it good for the fans? I, I think on balance, I mean, I think we're going to have a more streamlined calendar. We're going to have more mixed events, which I think is a huge plus. We mm -hmm. are going to have longer big events. If you are a Washington, D.C. tennis fan or one of these 250 that's getting squeezed, not great. If you are a player ranked 120, not great. But I think on balance, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think for 
sort of the run of the mill fan of the run of the mill player, meaning a guy ranked 10 to 70. I think it's probably overall net positive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfect. There are local communities who might lose their tournaments, which is obviously going to be a bad thing uh, for them. But the general idea that Gaudenzi has put forth, which is we have a premium product and we should stretch it out so that it occupies more space on the right. calendar. Uh, I, I do think that makes sense. The player uh, revenue part of this is not something I saw coming. And uh, basically the way it was laid out to me in the materials I read was that the players are pretty much guaranteed a, a 50-50 split, uh, at least for these Masters 1000s tournaments. It looked like if there's excess revenue, that the tournament is making that has to go 50 50 and that there's going to be transparency there. So my second question was going to be, should the players be happy about this? Uh, from, from what I'm seeing uh, that seems surprisingly good. I was shocked to see that. Or am I misunderstanding? Exactly no, what happened I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there are all sorts of factors here too. Um, there is the threat of a competing tour. It may not be live. It may not be the Saudi, you know, 2030 fun, but it might be, Bill Ackman and, you know, his saddlebags. There is a threat of the PTPA, which has diminished, but, you know, 18 months ago was a thing that I know the ATP was very concerned about. Um, a lot of this is just about the accounting. I mean, the, the big complaint of the players was we don't have full transparency. We're supposed to be partners here. This is an organization of, of tournaments and, you know, labor and, and management of tournaments and players. And yet we don't know what Jan Tiriak's Madrid balance sheets really look like. So if the players are happy with the level of transparency they're getting on these financials, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a positive that this revenue split is going to uh, swing in, in favor of the players. I mean, we all know about accounting tricks and we all know, you know, we, we see that it's isn't unique to tennis, not unique to sports. I mean, ask, ask people who are getting back end of a movie, what happens to, uh, you know, Top Gun's profit and how it looks a lot different than what it's reported as. Um, but, you know, in, in theory, it's an acknowledgement that this is a 50-50 partnership, that it's an acknowledgement that in the past, the accounting at these 1,000s events hasn't been to the player's satisfaction, which I think is, is true and I think is relevant and important. And yeah, I mean, again, if you are I'm picking, picking a name at random, if you're Hugo Gaston and you'll, you'll make a main draw at these things, and if you're the number 50th ranked guy, um, yeah, it's it's a good day for you. Yeah, 50-50, if it is that, like that's that's the NBA split. And then you could have a conversation right. about why aren't the tournaments generating more with the TV stuff, and that's a whole other story. Um, right. You know, if we, uh, John, you and I are both UFC fans, I think the split would look more like 90-10 if there was actual transparency there, which there's not. Uh, the phase... in, in, in UFC, yeah, let's be clear. Yeah. Um, in, in UFC... 10% to the players, the, the, the athletes, the guys who are getting their face bashed in 90 to management. Correct. So um, yeah, tennis is not, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll believe it when I see it, that we're going to have 50, 50 style revenue split like the NBA does, but yes, tennis compared to other individual sports, certainly UFC uh, is the athletes make out better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this conflict of interest part means absolutely nothing to me. Does it mean anything to you? I mean, I, I read it. It's just words. That's all. We will see. It? I mean, yeah, there's more to it. I mean, there, there are board members who represent management agencies who own tournaments, but also represent players. Imagine if you right. were represented as a player by a management agency that has an employee on your board 
advocating to reduce your salary. That is one example uh, among many. Um, there are a lot of conflicts. And if you just laid this out, this isn't media bitching. This isn't me and you. I mean, if you just yeah. laid this out to any corporate ethicist, they would say, what? You're trying to tell me that a board member who's voting on this issue is also, you know, has ties to the All England Club? I mean, it's just, you, you sort of go through some of these conflicts. And I think Godenzi recognizes this is a great growth stunter. And I think it's going to be case by case. I mean, it's hard to get too specific without sort of naming names and relationships and webs. But I think this gives him, if nothing else, I mean, you're right, it, it reads like word salad. But I think what it also does is it empowers him or somebody to say, hey, wait a second, IMG, you either represent players or tournaments, but you can't have a board member advocating for reduced prize money when the same entity represents talent. Um, so I, th I think if nothing else, it arms somebody, whether it's Godenzi, whether it's some independent board, it arms them with the right to um, sort of take on these conflicts, which are a huge, the more you sort of look under the hood or whatever the cliche is in this sport, the more you realize it's not just gross, it's not just unethical, but it really is to the sport's detriment that it's been so permissive about conflicts that in any other corporate environment wouldn't even be considered. Yeah, so I guess it's a don't say I didn't warn you kind mm -hmm. of thing. Good. Yeah. Um, I, I got to follow up on that though. Where is there an example that that sticks out in your mind? And you know, again, I don't want you to, there's so many of them, I don't want to put you in a position where you feel like you have to call out an individual or anything like that. But, but where, what would be an example of a conflict of interest in tennis getting in the way of its growth and really hurting the basic function of, of the sport? Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of large and small issues. So I IMG owns Miami. So all the wild cards go to IMG players. They use sure. that when they recruit players. So imagine if you had a situation like we have uh, heading into you know Andy Murray, who's or you know, pick a name at random. You know, Fran Francis gets on a hot streak, but uh, isn't represented by IMG, and he's being denied entry into the second or third biggest U.S. tournament because he's not represented by the management company. Um, yep. IMG. I mean, I don't know. We'll pick on IMG, which also you know IMG allegedly negotiated or helped set up this this Netflix deal, this sort of tennis version of Drive to Survive. So. Not surprisingly, there you hear complaints that it's IMG clients that are figuring prominently. Um, and then I think they're just sort of bigger board decisions. I mean, again, the fact that, and, and you know, WTA isn't immune from this either, but that these management companies can represent players and stage tournaments and have people that are sort of advocating against the players they represent is just mind boggling. Right, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if, if they're going to be able to actually snuff these out. I'm a little bit pessimistic for some reason. I don't know why, uh, but I hope so. That would be nice. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, ignore phase two, just so everybody knows who's, who's watching. It's, uh, phase two of the plan is to basically take the governing bodies and bring them together and make a more cohesive, governing structure so that's way down the road that is godenzi's hope uh, i'll ask you real quick though are you hopeful about phase two i know it's not close but but do you feel uh like it's something that that's realistic that it can be done 
I, you know, I think at some level it's going to depend on the success of phase one. But yeah, if people, if, if the WTA says, you know what, we are really well served by these events. We don't feel like second class citizens. We don't feel like our players have to get here at five in the morning for the practice court. I mean, it's just, it's little things apart from revenue splits and TV windows. I mean, you can't believe how often players bitch about practice courts at these. I mean, this is a huge, this practice courts is a huge, when you bring it to the players, right? it's a huge impediment to joint events. I mean, it comes up again and again, um, which sounds silly and, and sort of short-sighted, but I, you know, different people have different issues. Um, I think you, you look at the numbers that were thrown around, we, we can roll our eyes and sort of argue about the morality of it all, but look at the numbers thrown around last weekend on the live golf tour, right? I mean, look at, um, look at salaries in other sports for Mark. I mean, look at the NBA median salary is going to be eight figures next year. Um, yeah. I think tennis is realizing, look, we're this international sport. We have these assets. Why don't we have the kind of financials that other similarly situated sports do? And I think that, um, I, you know, I, I, I like personally, I think Godin, he's a former player, but he also sort of has this, this NBA sense, but he's not a robot. I mean, I think that the right set of circumstances, do I think all seven of these tennis entities are going to come together and uh, grow the pie for everyone? That, that might be optimistic. But I do think if this phase one proves successful and if there's some demonstrable wins that you can point to, um, I, I'm sort of guardedly optimistic here. I mean, I think tennis has a number of external wake-up calls that, look, we're dropping the ball here, guys. We should be in a different place than we are. I think there are these existential threats, whether it's mobile and gaming or whether it's rival tours or whether it's, you know, I mean, the, the Saudi golf tour didn't come out of nowhere. It's part of a broader spend to use soft power to transform the Saudi economy. It wouldn't be crazy if they said, you know what, let's park a billion dollars in tennis. I don't know. I mean, would could the ATP and the WTA withstand that? If, if somebody was suddenly saying, I'm going to pay you 3X what you're making at Stuttgart? Um, so I, I, I think some of this is a, a vision that makes a lot of sense. And I think some yeah. of this is also these kind of existential external threats that um, tend to incentivize people to make good decisions. I'm glad Gaudenzi is is throwing it out there and shooting for the mm -hmm. the highest goals possible uh, because and and understanding I guess uh, it's nice to see I would say complacency out the window when it comes to this plan uh, it's good That's to good. see that I would say let's uh, shift gears to Wimbledon. Is that going to be, is this going to be a higher rated segment? You think the, the Wimbledon stuff, John? <laughs> there we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, can we, can we talk about Roger and Serena? No, I'm <laughs> um, I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I mean, all, all jokes aside, I'm glad you brought that up because sort of tennis politics, um, you know, again, it's not the sexiest topic, but in a lot of ways, it's more important than whether Alcaraz is going to be a threat on grass. I mean, it's, it's really, it's not golf, right? It's, it's not quite uh, the, the, the PGA's dilemma right now, but it was a big week for tennis. And, um, you know, whether Iga doesn't play a warm-up is significant, but it, we, we should be talking about these, these structural issues. So good, good on you. Yes, Will, Wimbledon will be a uh, more highly rated, happier topic. What, uh, what can we talk about? So let's talk about the points thing. Um, 
the ATP has positioned this as Russian and Belarusian players are not, uh, have been wronged basically. And in the name of fairness, we are stripping Wimbledon because it hasn't adhered to our rankings policy. Oh, by the way, it would be nice if the slam stopped acting unilaterally. That's kind of how I read the, the ATP and WTA's communications. I feel like it's more of the latter. I'm curious to know how you feel about the balance of is, are the tours really sticking up for Russian and Russian players, or is it more a reminder of, okay, you guys, the slams, you can't walk all over us. We actually do wield some power here and you do need to follow the, the rules that, that we've set out for our ranking system and our tournaments. Uh, that is a great question. Um, I feel like the tours felt they couldn't do nothing. They couldn't just eat it. I, I don't feel like either tour is particularly swayed morally, right? I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, you know, Russia's not a particularly sympathetic nation state these days. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is an issue that was particularly controversial. Right. Um, but I do think you're right. I mean, I think, I think the tourists felt they couldn't do nothing. I think you had this looming precedent, not just the what happens in the future when China does X and the U.S. does Y, but I think this, this larger question you raise of this was done completely unilaterally, and we know it's not realistic that we're going to respond with a boycott. I mean, that's kind of the usual leverage you'd bring to bear, right? When, when an employer acts in a way you find disagreeable, you say, I'm not going to work. Well, that's not going to happen for the reasons we talked about, right? When a second round loser at Wimbledon makes more money than winning a title, that's a problem. Um, so I think some of this was a recognition that, look, these, these majors, we've got to keep them under control. We can't, no, our players aren't going to boycott. That's not realistic, but we can't do nothing. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, what, what you're left with is sort of this measure that I mean, who, who really, that doesn't really appease anyone. The players are not particularly happy from, from John Isner to sort of from people who Fuksovich and I mean, look, look what happens if Veratini loses early, look what happens to his rankings and Dennis Shapovalov. I mean, but also just, I, I don't think anyone's particularly well-served. Djokovic certainly isn't well-served, but at the same time, you can't do nothing when your colleagues are being, I, mean, I, I, I bristle at discriminated against because there, there is, you know, they, they didn't just throw a dart at a dartboard. Like there sure. is a proximate cause here and it's Russia's, you know, grotesque, costal, whatever, uh, you know, un, unjustified, indefensible war. Um, I, I feel like the, the tours couldn't do nothing. This was kind of a compromise. I'm not sure it makes anyone happy. My, my suspicion is that it's going to be a talking point. And it's, that's the way these things always break. This is going to be remembered as the slam when X happened. And after 24 hours, it's back to tennis. And there's a crazy match. And there's an upset. And Nick Kyrgios does something crazy. And Djokovic wins the trophy. And it's going to be a footnote that you had this boycott. But it, it is a bit of an awkward way to start an event. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be a big talking point. And I do think it'll loom as a, as a factor, as a mental factor for, for the athletes, especially when it comes to like a Daniil Medvedev who is playing grass court season right now without a Wimbledon to lead into. And that's points aside, but you know, I also, I guess my criticism of it is wouldn't it have been effective to say, look, 
Wimbledon 2022, that doesn't count for points. We're taking that off the table. That is, that is kind of the, the punishment for not including Russian and Belarusian players, which is not in accordance with our rankings policy. But we'll freeze the 2021 points so that players aren't nosediving down the rankings by no fault of their own. I feel like that would have been an a, a easy middle ground to hit. Um, I, you know, I wish I had in front of me. Godenzi actually sent out an email last week basically explaining why they've rejected that policy. If you give me a minute, I, I can send it to you. I can read it to you. Um, it was considered, and I think, I mean, the, the, the bigger issue, I think, is that doesn't, doesn't the ATP kind of diminish itself? I mean, the rankings points are one of the sort of the great leverage the two tours have. And so they've made a mess of their rankings as a byproduct and unintended consequences of this, the player who comes from the band nation is going to ascend to number. he did, did ascend already to number one. So if we're worried about glorifying Russia, well, you just played a role in that. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of unhappy constituents who are now confused about the rankings. So, I mean, the, I, again, I feel like they had to do something. I, I think your suggestion, I, I don't have it in front of me. I don't want to misstate it. What you're suggesting, which is basically just take 2022 off the table but you don't lose 2021. Um, I, that was discussed and sort of, sort of considered and thoughtfully rejected. I don't, I don't want to misstate why, but okay. that, was, that was on the table and, and rejected for reasons that presumably were couched in logic. I don't know. Um, I, can, I can send it to you if it helps. Yeah, I, I do think they also included that in an FAQ that I did read, mm-hmm. but but that was all I read that three weeks ago, so I couldn't state it right now either. Uh, I don't think it left me a hundred percent convinced or or changing my my opinion. Right. Everybody's gonna play Wimbledon, right? Are we is that what we're feeling? Ooh. I you were just on the grounds of Roland Garros. I know you were talking to people. Is that your sense? What what I heard is that, I mean, yes, of the eligible play, you know, Zverev's obviously not playing and the Russians aren't playing. And I, yeah. I think Nadal, I mean, whatever, we, we could timestamp this. As, as of Monday, I, I think he'll probably go. And you, you're halfway to a grand slam. You're the toast of tennis. You're, I, I think he might give it a go. But I, I, think, I think they're going to play. But I, what I'm hearing, Isner even mentioned this. I don't know if you saw John Isner's tweet. But what I heard again and again is players are going to sort of do it holding their nose. And they're not going to take, they, they canceled, multiple players canceled rentals in the village. They'll stay at the hotel. They'll go, they'll play a little grass. They win, they won't win. They'll get their prize money, they'll leave. They are not treating this as one of the real sort of building points of their season. And I, I, don't, I don't even know if they're, I mean, tanking is a strong word, but I think there's sort of a grudging attendance and not a, you know, I'm, I'm coming here and I'm going to give myself every possible opportunity. I think this is just another tour stop. I'm not going to get there a week early and get on my grass shoes and get a home rental so I can get in a rhythm. I'll show up. I'll check into the hotel. I'll bring my brackets to the courts. I'll play. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I won't. If not, I'll take my check and go. And I think, um, you know, I mean, that, that might, I think sometimes, you know, maybe that will infect the early rounds. But again, by the time we get to the fourth round and there's, tennis history on the line and Djokovic is going for 21. I, I don't know if people really care about that. Do they? I don't think so. And unfortunately we've had this question come up sometimes pretty unjustifiably, but we've had it come up a bunch of times, 2020 U S open 
uh, with the Djokovic default, obviously the Djokovic deportation in, uh, in Australia earlier this year, you know, there has been a lot of, and mostly it comes from, from the radical parts of fan bases, but you know, there, there, there has been that at a lot of these recent slams and, um, yeah, all right, but lot, lot that, lot that off. Um, we, we rob, right. I mean, and, and you know, part, I really, I don't know, I'm just tangent. These, sure. these radical part of these radical fan bases that we all are, uh, somehow, you know, we're, we're all in various ways put into contact with. I'm really torn. I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of ruins it for everyone and it makes social media unpleasant, and some of it's just really vile and nasty and ill considered. On the other hand, I don't, you know, at least people care. You don't want indifference. Yeah. You don't want apathy if you will. But I think every time it doesn't get to go for tennis. Whenever we talk about the asterisk, unless it's something statistical, right? Unless it's, I always say, like if Roger Maris got extra games to hit those home runs. I mean, that's something that's sort of mathematically relevant. But every time we talk about it's COVID or, you know, Serena didn't play or Monica, I mean, every time in tennis that we talk about, is there going to be an asterisk when? It never works. Does anyone say Naomi Osaka's 2020 U.S. Open, it shouldn't really count because there weren't fans? Or does anyone say, even Nadal's 2022 Australian Open, he won a final in five sets over the guy who's now number one. That's what people remember. I think it's a complete red herring. It's a mixed metaphor. This asterisk is a red herring. And uh, it's sort of a hot take point, but it never sticks. It never works out that way. Nobody cares that you didn't have to play a top 20 player to win the major. Nobody cares if someone got hurt and Marion Bartoli won. Like it just, the winner is the winner. We move on. And I think it's going to be that way for this Wimbledon too. 100%. The the history, macro history, it it does not get as into the weeds as we all like to imagine that it does, especially when it comes to something as big as the slam race, where you have big, massive numbers flashing in everyone's face after every single slam. Uh, let's get to, let's get to RG. Um, you spent the two weeks in Paris. You did a great job uh, with tennis channel at the desk, uh, interviewing players for two weeks. What did we, I want to start with Nadal. What we learned about his foot after he won championship point, how does that, change the way you view his title run or if it does at all um i don't you know it's it's really hard and i think as a sports i mean sort of assessing injuries always really difficult right i mean it's one of the big no-nos of sport you never doubt an athlete and never sort of speculate and it's really hard i think part of it is this this is like a degenerative chronic condition right so we know we saw zvera we saw pull the ankle we have comps we know if somebody says i you know, tore two ligaments. We have a sense of what that is. Like, I, I don't, I have to look it up on my notes, like what the name of the syndrome is that I'll have. It's so Mueller-Weiss, um, I believe. Mueller-Weiss syndrome. Very good. I, I, there's, a, there's a YouTube video that I've been encouraging people to watch just because it actually explains what it is. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. sort of a disintegration. Um, you know, you, you don't like to hear that a guy was, his foot was basically numbed. I don't know if any of us really can, I mean, we all sort of wrote, you know, we all have the transcript and we all wrote what Nadal said and he's, he's an honorable guy, but I don't know, like his foot was asleep. I don't know, what, what is that? Can you run across a tennis court for multiple hours when your foot's asleep? I can't even um, walk right. 
Exactly. Um, so I don't, I mean, I think clearly there's an issue here. Clearly he's been in pain for a long time. I mean, if people saw him in DC, let, let alone this year, people saw him in DC last summer. It was clear this was a deeply, deeply compromised athlete. Um, and I think we just kind of have to take his word for it that he's managing this effectively. And sometimes miraculously, he's going to be able to play through it and other times not. I mean, I can tell you that I went to his very first practice. Um, and then I went to a practice before he played his first match, even on a, you know, a backcourt on a Monday or whatever it was. I don't know. looked like the doll to me. And I'm sort of thinking if this is a pointless exercise, unless we are in position to feel the sensations he's feeling. I don't know. looks like the doll, but who, who are we for all I know he's in agony and he's playing through it. And for all I know, they've numbed this thing and he's back to being a hundred percent a doll. I think to the naked eye, most of us couldn't really see any, you know, visible signs, which is great. But also yep. this, this is not this is a 36 year old man who doesn't need anyone's approval. Like he's not concocting stories. It would not be in his nature. It would not be sort of something you'd expect from someone that clearly there's something here. And he sort of said, look, I'll talk about it after the tournament. And so we were all waiting. The unfortunate thing is he had this amazing tournament. He wins the 14th time, 22 majors. And the whole press conference turns into like Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> um, so you, I mean, we sort of it, 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 go go back and read the transcript, and you'd think yeah. the guy was like retiring, and now he's had this crowning moment of his career. It should have been this absolute celebration of this titan who just pulled two majors ahead, and it's all about ligaments and injections and TUEs, and um, it it was that that was sort of an unfortunate offshoot of this. But I I don't know. I mean, I think my my sense is clearly there's an effective doctor, and he can still win majors. My sense also is he wakes up. On the, I mean, you know, the cliche, but you know, he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and he doesn't play Wimbledon. So I think it's just, yeah, who knows? Uh, I, I sort of, you, you got to trust me, not him specifically. I think in general, we'd all yeah. do well to trust athletes when they talk about their body. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I mean, I think it, it goes kind of goes along with the lore of, of Nadal just figuring out ways and never giving up because mm -hmm. I, I do think it's accurate to say, with uh, some of the issues he's had over his career. I mean, it's hard to step away when you're still winning every time you're on the court, uh, but, but some probably would have, have hung it up, hung up the racket by, by now with all of the, the issues that he's gone through, but, but he's still chugging along and hoping that this uh, latest foot thing works out. Um, I agree today for timestamping it Monday, June 13th, I do believe he's going to, uh, to play um, Wimbledon. Iga, uh, first of all, impressions from, from watching courtside, from interviewing her a number of times, and we, we have a new dominant number one on the WTA Tour. I think that much is very, very clear. Uh, I'm also curious to know what you feel the effects of that are on women's tennis. Oh, man. I mean, the mystery to me is why she doesn't punch through more. She is, like, unplayably good right now. I mean, just there were, you know, with her stretches, she had to work her way through. She lost a set. There were a couple of patchy, patchy patches, as one would expect when you have to win 14 sets over you know, two weeks. But she came in as a player to beat and she lived up to it. And there were times, including the final, where she was just I mean, playing in a different, you know, just a different plane. I mean, it was just a different level of tennis. Um, and she's, for, for lack of a better word, she's awesome. She's, funny and accessible and smart and she has interest beyond tennis and i mean she's 
coming off the court. So it's not like doing this in an interview at a hotel or even in a press conference when you've got 90 minutes. I mean, she's literally walking off the court and she's talking about Ukraine and she's talking about what book she read. And I knew, you know, you do these courtside interviews and it's always a fraught exercise. I mean, it's always, I always say that the risk reward ratio is way out of whack. Like if, if everything goes right, it's unremarkable. And if everything goes wrong, it's on YouTube. And, um, but even then in that format, she'd sign every autograph in sight. She'd sign the camera, usually with something witty. She'd have a smile on her face. And then she would go and have these monologues about the three musketeers or, you know, what, what she likes about Paris or why she feels she needs to support Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't, I mean, to me, she's, Coco's great. She's great. I think for something's going to click and people are going to realize this is a absolutely charismatic dynamic star who happens to be winning every set of tennis she practically plays um it, it's a lot of pressure to come to a tournament and every the talk is like you versus the field and then you back it up Crazy. um i thought uh i thought she was great and i thought um i i can't quite nail it i mean you can say whatever you know, she's not from a major tennis nation whatever it is i mean you can sort of come up with your own uh but I, I think she's terrific, and I think people are in for a real treat. If, if this is the future of women's tennis, like, we're going to be okay here. Same, same for Coco. I, I think she probably wins Wimbledon, right? I mean, she's, she's not so recharged. She won't play any events. She's a junior champion. Her game, I think, works awfully well on clay, but I can't really come up with too many reasons why it wouldn't work just as well on grass. And uh, if this is the future of women's tennis, uh, we're, we're going to be okay here. Yeah. Uh, I think it might help her to win Wimbledon or the U S open in, in some ways, just for the American market. I don't think Mm. that's really true about um, other, other markets that care just as much about Australia and and Paris. Uh, I also think that, you know, there, there hasn't been a lot of time for her. Uh, She's only really been dominating. Uh, You know, she had the major in 2020, but then, the her rise to number one it's only what three four months old so i think that's the optimistic view of of sviantek's stardom is that is that it might take just a little bit more time obviously you could say well it didn't take a long time for someone like radu kanu to have mainstream explosive uh popularity so uh that's that's the that's the balance um let's uh Here's the kicker, okay? You've been, you interviewed multiple players every single day. Players, especially when they get right off the court, is genuinely uh, an immense challenge uh, to get them out of their, out of their sports cliches. I want to ask you, did anybody say anything that shocked you? Putting you on the spot. Shocked me. Um, I would say shocked. I think about just, I tell you, some of these, so, so the question becomes um, sort of, you, you, want, you want the, uh, should, we, should we talk about the dark arts of uh, these courtside interviews? Yes. Um, no, I mean, you know, so I do a 60 minutes interview, right? And you go mm-hmm. in, it's not live. You've got questions and questions. You've had weeks of preparation. The subject knows they're sitting down with you. I mean, there's a real, it's, you know, sort of both are interviews, but these couldn't be the completely opposite ends of the plane, right? Um, so player walks off the court. The first question invariably has to, you know, you can't start out with like, tell me about your relationship with your mother, right? You have to, 
great match out there, Gil. What what went? Were you sort of start with something? Summarize the action. What were you most proud of? You, you try not to have the, the biggest cliche, which you're always told not to say, is how does it feel? But essentially, it's how does it feel? Um, you just get them going, and then you sort of based on any of a number of things, right? The tenor of the match. If someone did it seven six in the fifth set, you don't want to sit there and. But, you know, a quick, quick and easy routine match, you might free it up. If you have a relationship with the player, you know, I try to think, like I'm pretty tight with Sloane Stevens. So I knew that she's not going to say what? Like I knew she'd play ball to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you think you have a really good question and the players don't get it. Sometimes Roger's great at this. I mean, Roger will take the worst question. You could literally, you know, how, how, many, uh, how many continents are there? And Roger will turn it into an eloquent answer about, you know, playing through pressure. Some players will bail you out. Um, I had a question to uh, Medvedev about whether he's a poker player because he always says, oh, I suck on clay and, uh, you know, whatever my seating is, it should be lower and I can't wait to get off of clay. And then for the first three matches, he was like, didn't drop sets. I mean, he beat Ketsmanovich, I think it was like, it was a junior, I mean, just two different players. Um, so I asked him if he played poker and he had this long rant about his poker skills and he's trying to get into it and, then we went from there to like pickle juice. Um, I did not expect to be, he said, if, if you're, if you drink pickle juice and you're not doing it to rehydrate, you're a weirdo. Um, <laughs> I did not expect to be having that conversation, but um, you know, I don't, I mean, these, these, I, my experience with these players are overall, they're really quite good. And um, I don't know, Kazakina. I mean, they're all these, I mean, it's, it's part of like going back to what we we're talking about with the Godenzi's strategic plan. Mm-hmm. You have this global base of players. They were, I mean, Coco's great, 18 years old. And Rafa's great twice her age, 36. And they're accessible and they're not robots and they're not jerks and they represent different values. I mean, to me, the, if one thing happened with these courtside interviews, it really sort of reinforced tennis as athletes. These are charismatic, marketable, global stars. They're all very different. They're men and women. They're teenagers and they're guys in their late thirties, it's international. Some people are somber, some are humorous. Ego wants to talk about books. Sloan Stephen wants to talk about shopping for toothpaste. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a lot to work with here. And overall, yeah, there's some jerks and yeah, you know, some players we all like more than others, but overall from Djokovic and Nadal from, from the stars to the people who are just happy to be in the second week, it's a really likable group of people overall. And it's just a pity that all the, bullshit and the politics and the conflicts of interest is like sand in the gears because I, I guess it's a long answer to a short and good question by you but if these I wasn't shocked by any singular responses but what I was sort of really struck by was just overall good people and diverse people and tennis will be fine after Serena and Federer and Nadal and Djokovic but anything that gets the bullshit out of the way and lets the Cocos and the Egos and the Sinners and the Francis's take center stage. Um, we should all be in favor of that. May Netflix shed light on all the great personalities in the go. sport among, among other entities. Uh, John, go. John, this was great. Enjoyed it so much as always. Appreciate you coming on. You got it. Anytime. Thanks, Gil. 
Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.